Hello, and welcome to this Speedlisten installment of the Six Gun Justice Podcast. I'm Richard Prosh. While my saddle pard, Paul Bishop, and I ride the trail together for our longer episodes, Speedlistens are occasional short podcast installments wherein we ride solo. Today, I'll turn the page on Owen Wister, and we'll see how the West was written with Ron Shear. Before high school, I had no idea who Owen Wister was. I knew about Louis L'Amour and Zane Gray, and even Max Brand, whose real name was Frederick Schiller Faust. And if you asked me who best deserved the title Father of Western Fiction, I might have said O. Henry, but would also have challenged the gender and answered with Willa Cather, a scribe so beloved in my home state in those days that they put her books in your grade school hands before anybody else. But in high school, I read excerpts of The Virginian and Lynn McLean, and Mrs. Nancy Brooks, my English teacher, told me Wister was pretty darned important to the world of Western fiction, more important than Willa Cather. And for such sacrilege, I was surprised she wasn't immediately furnished with a one-way ticket west on one of the infamous prairie schooners we were always reading about in Nebraska history. When the Conestoga wagons and six-gun shooters didn't show up, I believed her and read more from Wister. Owen Wister, who wrote The Virginian, wasn't from Nebraska, or Virginia for that matter. Instead, he started out in Germantown, Pennsylvania, eventually arriving at Harvard, where, as a member of the Porcelain Club, he met and became lifelong friends with Teddy Roosevelt. He graduated from Harvard Law School in 1888. In 1882, Wister wrote a parody of the 1812 Johann David Weiss novel, The Swiss Family Robinson, called The New Swiss Family Robinson. As a student, Wister spent several summers in the American West, including the Wyoming Territory in 1885, where he set out to hunt, fish, and meet the Indians. He was struck with the wonder and expanse of the frontier West, a dying culture he recognized was on its way out. After graduation from Harvard and several more trips West, including an 1893 visit to Yellowstone National Park, where he befriended the artist Frederick Remington, Wister gave up law to write serious fiction. From the fall of 1893 until the spring of 1902, Wister published several short stories in both Harper's Magazine and the Saturday Evening Post. Some of these became a series of tales, called Lynn McLean, first published together in 1897. Others were adapted into his most famous work, The Virginian, which tells the story of a tall, nameless aristocrat, the archetypal cowboy character, set against a mythologized Johnson County war. After college, my wife attended the University of Wyoming, where, since 1978, the student literary and arts magazine is called the Owen Wister Review. Not coincidentally, at that time, I was compelled to pull the Virginian from my shelf and read it again. The story contains all the Western tropes we've come to know and love. The Virginian, who his friend Steve calls by the nickname Jeff for Jefferson Davis, is otherwise nameless as is the narrator of the story, who is known as the Tenderfoot. From his innocent point of view, the Tenderfoot tells of the Virginian's exploits as he engages in a long-standing feud with an enemy named Trampas and romances a pretty schoolmarm named Molly Starkwood. And what self-respecting Western wouldn't be complete without a cool catchphrase? The Virginian had that too, as it's responsible for the oft-misquoted but inspired line, Smile when you say that, arising from a poker duel between the Virginian and Trampas. Here's the scene, but first a little background. The term, son of a bitch, was a more dire insult in 1902 than today. But, like today, it was the kind of thing two men who were friends might call one another in jest. Early in the story, the narrator hears the Virginian's friend Steve tease him with the slur, and expecting a confrontation is pleasantly surprised when nothing transpires. However, this isn't the case later on. 
It was now the Virginian's turn to bet or leave the game, and he did not speak at once. Therefore, Trampas spoke. Your bet, you son of a... The Virginian's pistol came out, and his hand lay on the table, holding it unaimed. And with a voice as gentle as ever, the voice that sounded almost like a caress, but drawling a very little, more than usual, so that there was almost a space between each word, he issued his orders to the man Trampas. When you call me that, smile. And he looked at Trampas across the table. Yes, the voice was gentle, but in my ears, it seemed as if somewhere the bell of death was ringing, and silence, like a stroke, fell on the large room. All men present, as if by some magnetic current, had become aware of this crisis. In my ignorance and the total stoppage of my thoughts, I stood stock still and noticed various people crouching or shifting their positions. Sit quiet, said the dealer, scornfully to the man near me. Can't you see he don't want to push trouble? He has handed Trampas the choice to back down or draw his steel. Then with equal suddenness and ease, the room came out of its strangeness. Voices and cards, the click of chips, the puff of tobacco, glasses lifted to drink. This level of smooth relaxation hinted no more plainly of what lay beneath does the surface tell than the depths of the sea. For Trampas had made his choice, and that choice was not to draw his steel. If it was knowledge that he sought, he had found it, and no mistake. We heard no further reference to what he had been pleased to style amateurs. In no company would the black-headed man who had visited Arizona be rated a novice at the cool art of self-preservation. One doubt remained. What kind of man was Trampas? A public backdown is an unfinished thing, for some natures at least. I looked at his face and thought it sullen, but tricky rather than courageous. Something had been added to my knowledge also. Once again, I had heard applied to the Virginian that epithet which Steve had so freely used. The same words, identical to the letter, but this time they had produced a pistol. When you call me that, smile. So I perceived a new example of the old truth, that the letter means nothing until the spirit gives it life. Scholars can debate whether Wister's work represents the first true traditional Western novel, comparing and contrasting The Virginian with The Administratrix by Emma Gent Curtis and Wister's own Lynn McLean in 1897. But the fact that the 1902 novel was reprinted 14 times in eight months, brought successfully to the stage in 1904, and produced for the movies in 1914 by Cecil B. DeMille, leaves little room as to doubt its enormous popularity and long-lasting influence. Since 1914, the book has been carried to the screen four more times. First in 1923 with Kenneth Harlan, then in 1929 with Gary Cooper and Walter Houston. Directed by Victor Fleming, this was the first talking version of the story and was Cooper's first Western. He was coached on the Virginian's southern accent by Randolph Scott. The film was well-received, but somewhat forgotten after Stuart Gilmore's 1946 Technicolor version starring Joel McRae. After that, the novel was loosely adapted for NBC TV and The Virginian ran from 1962 to 1971 starring James Drury, and was television's third longest-running series behind Number 1 Gunsmoke and Number 2 Bonanza.
The Virginian returned to its roots in a 2000 TV movie with Bill Pullman and Diane Lane, and again in 2014 with Trace Adkins and Victoria Pratt. Nebraska scholar and blogger, my late friend Ron Shear, described Wister's cowboy characters best in his summation of Lynn McLean. McLean is nonetheless indomitable. Life's sorrows may blunt his high spirits, but he remains undefeated. He is not carefree, but he can take pleasures where he finds them. There is the camaraderie of his fellow cowboys and solace in the farmstead he acquires and begins to improve. Ron wrote that in the first volume of his three-book set, How the West Was Written, 1880 through 1906. I first met Ron Shear through his blog, Buddies in the Saddle, which ran from 2010 until his death in 2015. After swapping stories about our mutual Nebraska heritage and talking about our shared love of jazz music, we engaged in a shared reading of The Virginian. It was the first time I'd read the work since those days in Wyoming, and 20-plus years had worn away some of the edges. Ron drew me into the story with the letters we swapped, pointing out plot details I never saw or maybe never would have seen, bringing Wister off the solitary range and dropping him firmly into place with other emerging and many ultimately forgotten Western writers of the time. Some of that correspondence made its way to the blog, and Buddies in the Saddle, in turn, made its way to How the West Was Written. Of the three books, Spur Award-winning author Carol Buchanan says, Ron Shear's scholarship is meticulous, and the book is an enlightening contribution to American literature with this study of the Western, its roots, and its themes. I'm proud to have it on my bookshelf. It's unique in the canon, as far as I know. The first two volumes of How the West Was Written are essentially a series of Western fiction reviews, the likes of which readers like me are familiar. But also unlike reviews of more contemporary titles, because the work Ron describes is so much more staid, Victorian, and filled with unfamiliar verbiage, the third volume of How the West Was Written is a glossary of late 19th and early 20th century terms. Ron used to joke, I read the old books so that you don't have to. And to a certain extent, it was true. Personally, I likely wouldn't have made it through Harold Bell Wright's The Winning of Barbara Worth, 1911, or Honor Morrow's Bodice Ripper, The Heart of the Desert, 1913. But several of the reviews did lead me to works that I did read and never would have undertaken. Ron's take on William McLeod Rainey's Wyoming, 1908, led me to Mansize, and his look at Zane Grey, Heritage of the Desert, 1910, forced me back for a second look at Zane Grey. And two, I dipped into several different volumes that I either picked up and mailed to Ron, or he suggested I find for myself. What I found most interesting was how the fiction of the early 1900s often paralleled the writing style of the nonfiction books on my shelf from that same era. I can pull down Edgar Beecher Bronson's Cowboy Life on the Western Plains, The Reminiscence of a Ranchman, 1910, and it compares well with his 1910 novel, The Red-Blooded, reviewed by Ron. Each seems to blend legendary fact and reality-based fiction, and where the line between fantasy and reality occurs almost doesn't matter. It's like that, too, with the Native American stories presented by John G. Nyhard, another Nebraskan who wrote the novel The Lonesome Trail in 1907. Exploring the early days of the American West through its literature is an entertaining and edifying experience. Like The Untamed Frontier, it's not always for the faint of heart. These books, written more than a 100 years ago, don't reflect our current sensitivities regarding race, national origin, or women's issues. Sensitive souls are advised to tread lightly. But that said, there's more we can learn from these early scrolls than you might think. These were men and women on the verge of a wide open land and a century rife with expectation. They wrote about it as it occurred in authentic new voices that had never been heard before. Voices that might seem strange to us now or all too familiar to the point of cliche. Either way, Owen Wister and his peers 
The first generation to weave the mythological tapestry of the American Wild West have left their impression on all of us, and only through reading their words and understanding their challenges can we understand Western fiction and who we ultimately became as people more than a full century later. Thanks for listening to this exclusive Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. And thanks to our sponsors, author Chris Enns, the Western Writers of America, and Wolfpack Publishing, home of such rousing Western action as The Legend of the Black Rose and Concho. Remember to check out the Six Gun Justice website at www.sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. You can follow the Six Gun Justice podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Till next time, be kind to one another, be kind to yourself, and keep your eyes on the Western horizon. Let's ride. <laughs>